1: Welcome to The Intelligence from The Economist. I'm Jason Palmer.
0: And I'm Aura Ogumbi. Every weekday, we provide a fresh perspective on the events shaping your world.
1: When it comes to reducing the amount of atmospheric carbon dioxide, you could simply release less of it. Or you could grab what's already out there. Our correspondent reports from the frontier of that approach. Direct air capture.
0: And... Spanish language music is having a moment, spreading and streaming across borders, not just in the Spanish-speaking world, but everywhere. Our language columnist combs through the Spotify data and has a little listen to what's going on. But first... Bangladesh's Prime Minister, Sheikh Hasina, is the world's longest-serving female head of state. In a country that has faced devastating natural disasters and desperate living standards, she has presided over a historic reduction in poverty. But her long rule has now become a problem. The populous South Asian country is riddled with corruption, and its best and brightest are leaving in their droves— If Sheikh Hasina loosened her grip on power, a brighter future may beckon for Bangladesh. But she has other plans.
2: I went to see Sheikh Hasina in the big five-star hotel in North Virginia, just across the Potomac River from Washington, D.C., where she was staying.
0: James Astor is The Economist's Asia editor.
2: And it's a kind of anodyne, sort of out-of-city place, but it had become South Asia for the afternoon. There was a huge horde of... Bangladeshis, supporters of her, protesters against her, sort of flocking outside this hotel to the, causing sort of panic and bemusement amongst the Virginian cops who were hurriedly trying to police them.
0: Back up now. Back up. Back
2: up. And they were chanting slogans mostly against Sheikh Kasina. There'd been some scuffling, I think actually some quite serious violence between the two groups of protesters shortly before I arrived. We want democracy. We Negotiating a way through that crowd in order to get into the hotel to meet Bangladesh's prime minister sort of took me back to South Asia before we even got into the conversation.
0: And when you did get into the conversation, what did she say?
2: She is a very prickly, defensive interviewee with the Western media. She bridles against any criticism, any implicit suggestion that things are not going perfectly in Bangladesh is something that annoys her a lot. So she was a bit on the defensive to begin with and I just asked her what her message would be in the election that's due in Bangladesh at the beginning of next year and then I asked her about her economic programme a little bit. So very softball introductory questions which she answered by criticising pretty much every post-independence government Bangladesh has had before her own.
3: When the military ruler started ruling the country, there was a massive corruption. Because but, he was, but let me ask you about I'm corruption me, let me, let now,
2: me. corruption yes, today. I'm,
3: I'm telling you, sometimes you have to carry on the legacy. That's why I'm telling you, you should know the history of Bangladesh. How Bangladesh becomes so corrupt.
2: Very, very now, defensive approach to these quite softball questions. And then, you know, we got into the condition of Bangladesh here and now, which has some problems as well as some progress.
0: And tell us a bit more about these problems.
2: Bangladesh is a study in contrasts. It's been the most successful economy in South Asia for the last decade and a half or so. It's a story of tremendous progress economically and therefore massive poverty alleviation. But despite that sort of general picture of progress, there's some serious concerns. Corruption is appalling. It's rated the most corrupt country in South Asia, apart from maybe Afghanistan. In that corruption is quite political in nature. Under Sheikh Hasina, Bangladesh's democracy has taken a hit. Other political parties are hounded by the police. The police are very influenced by Sheikh Hasina's party, the Awami League. And the degree to which institutions like the police, like the courts have been suborned by her party It seems to be driving some of the corruption. So corruption, the retreat of democracy, growing authoritarianism on the part of her government and the prime minister herself, these are all pressing problems in Bangladesh.
0: What's driving that?
2: The growing authoritarianism that the Bangladeshi government manifests is absolutely rooted in the ambitions, the personality of Sheikh Hasina herself. And that goes beyond just being a powerful South Asian ruler.
3: Can you imagine that they killed my father? My father.
2: She is a dynastic ruler. Her father was the country's first president and was assassinated four years after Bangladesh got its independence from Pakistan.
3: They killed my brother, my father, my mother, my younger brother, only 10 years old. My two
2: sisters in law. It was a graphic, terrible crime. Sheikh Mujib and 17 members of his family, almost Sheikh Kasina's entire wider family, were assassinated in an army coup. She was spared as a young woman only because she happened to be out of the country at the time. And that sense of profound loss, but also the sense of entitlement and destiny that she was spared to sort of carry the flame of her father's legacy, very, very much informs the way that Sheikh Hasina uses power today. And it's manifest not only in the amount of control that she demands, but also a cult of personality that she has constructed around her murdered father, but by association herself also.
0: How else is this one-party rule impacting the people of Bangladesh?
2: Beyond the corruption, beyond the capture of Institutions by Sheikh Hasina's party. I think there's also a sense of a government that's just been in power too long, that is running out of ideas. Sheikh Hasina has been prime minister since 2008, and her government it just doesn't seem alive to the particular economic pressures that are apparent in Bangladesh. One of them, for example, is that though the country has been very, very successful in growing a garments industry, which is a huge exporter. It's become just too reliant on that industry. It needs to develop more diversified exports. And Sheikh Hasina's government doesn't seem to be doing very much to try to crack that conundrum. They also bridle at the question. They push back against the idea that their economic management isn't perfect. And the prime minister herself certainly pushes back hard.
0: And taking things outside of Bangladesh for a bit, how is she faring on the global stage?
2: So, on the one hand, unhappiness with Sheikh Hasina is clearly building up in Bangladesh. But outside the country, she's going great guns. Bangladesh, it's a populous country, 170 million people in a small space in relative terms, but sandwiched between two giant countries in China and India. And because of that very, very sensitive geopolitical positioning, Bangladesh is a concern also for America. America doesn't want to see Bangladesh make any great concessions to China, which would like to have a big economic stake in Bangladesh. It has difficult and various relationships to manage, and Sheikh Hasina seems to negotiate that difficulty remarkably well. You get very little in the way of public criticism of her government from the Americans. They once would have warned her to hold a free and fair election. You get no such criticism these days. The Chinese seem pretty accommodating to Sheikh Hasina. The Modi government in Delhi is a huge fan. So her ability to negotiate that difficult geopolitics, at least in the interests of her government, is quite notable.
0: James, in your view, is there a chance that we'll see a change in leadership or at least in direction in the country?
2: So, on the one hand, Sheikh Kasina says all the right things about the election. She's dedicated to a free and fair vote.
3: Since we form government, each and every election is totally free and fair, and people can cast their vote freely. That we ensured.
2: But on the other hand, she says that only a legitimate political party should be allowed to participate in a free and fair Bangladeshi election. And furthermore, she said that only her party, the Awami League, qualified as a stable and legitimate political party.
3: Our point is that there is no such a party who can really contest the election.
2: Only the Awami League?
3: Awami League is the only stable political party in the country now.
2: So she's pretty much disqualified in that sentence or two, the Bangladeshi opposition at a stroke. So it is pretty clear that the Awami League will win this election, that she will retain power, but it could be a rather bruising, bloody process for Bangladesh. Bangladeshi politics has a record of violence. Three of its former prime ministers have been assassinated, of course, including Sheikh Hasina's father. We're seeing already a prospect of street violence. Rights groups are warning that there will be more of it. Bangladeshis are a disputatious, voluble people, They're not easily suppressed. And so even if uh, Sheikh Hasina and her regime are able to sort of stifle Bangladeshi democracy, there will be overspill. There will be rowdy protests and a possibility of violence, perhaps serious violence in the run-up to this election.
0: James, thank you so much for coming on the show.
2: Thank you. It's a pleasure.
4: Visit bankofamerica.com slash banking for business to learn more. What would you like the power to do? Bank of America, NA, copyright 2024.
5: I'm standing in. Probably the flattest place I've been to on Earth. In a town called
1: No Trees, Texas. Vijay Vaitheeswaran is The Economist's global energy and climate innovation editor. I'm at the launch event put
5: on by Occidental Petroleum and some of its partners, including Carbon Engineering, which is a Bill Gates-backed technology company for what is gonna be the world's largest direct air capture facility.
6: Today is the birth of a new species.
5: At the event, I met Julio Friedman, a renowned energy technologist who's currently the chief carbon wrangler at Carbon Direct. That's an investment and advisory firm that specializes in greenhouse gas
6: emissions. This will be the second type of direct air capture technology deployed at any substantial scale. It will be by far the biggest, 500,000 tons a year. And the purpose of this is to demonstrate that we can do very large projects.
5: If we want to get to a world in which we've been able to tame climate change, in the long term, we're going to need not just to slash emissions from burning fossil fuels, but we need to remove greenhouse gases from the air. And things like direct air capture are absolutely vital if we're going to be able to achieve that. And Vijay, how does it work? What does it look like? So this is, in effect, a series of powerful fans that are able to capture carbon dioxide, which is very dilute in the atmosphere, and concentrate it into a liquid that can then be stored underground. You can put it into fizzy drinks if you want to make your Coca-Cola or into industrial processes like petrochemicals. But the advance here is that it's able to do this when it's up and running at a massive scale. That's what's new. Some 500,000 tons of CO2 that this plant in no trees will be able to capture each year and then pump it underground beneath the Texan Plains in the service of fighting climate change, because that carbon dioxide will stay down there
1: for millennia. I mean, in terms of taking in carbon dioxide and, and fixing it, that's kind of what trees do. These guys have invented the tree.
5: Well, that's, a, that's one way to look at it. However, what these engineered trees, if you want to call them that, these direct air capture machines can do is actually better in a certain way. Because if we use or rely on biological sequestration, particularly large amounts of forestation being used today to do certain kinds of carbon credits and sinks, what happens if the forest burns down tomorrow? We have a lot more certainty that this approach, this geological approach, this engineered approach of storing carbon through these kinds of engineered trees is more reliable. At the moment, the challenge is that it's very, very expensive, much more expensive than planting trees. But Julio Friedman explained how in the long term, the approach of using direct air capture machines could actually end up cheaper and more reliable than using trees.
6: When you're talking about CO2 removal, there's the nature-based pathways. We are going to see those prices go up. That has already begun to happen because you need land. So the easy stuff is taken and then that becomes more expensive over time. The technology pathways do the opposite. They start expensive and then as you innovate and you scale and you deploy, then the costs go down.
5: So that really makes the no trees launch
1: the green shoot of a new industry. You think you were looking at the leading edge of that industry?
5: This is not the only place in the world where this technology is being pioneered. Carbon engineering has several rivals, Climeworks of Switzerland. It actually has the lead on them. They started with a small plant in Iceland that uses geothermal energy. There's a Californian rival called Global Thermostat. And I recently surveyed the venture capital landscape. There are dozens of startups in this area with different kinds of approaches. But Occidental's plant, the one in No Trees, will be by far the biggest.
6: Occidental has made... A commitment to not just one of these plants, but to 130 of these plants. <laughs> they have announced plans to scale these very rapidly and profoundly.
5: And we have other companies looking seriously at scaling up as well. So there's a huge business opportunity here.
1: And what's changed from the sound of things is the scalability here. You, you believe in that. This can be made big enough to make a big enough difference.
5: I think we've crossed the line on that question. I went up to Canada where carbon engineering has its operations a couple of years ago and I kicked the tires on their pilot plant. And so what had been on the back of a napkin 20 years ago when I first met David Keith, who's the founder of Carbon Engineering. It was just a vision he had of what could be done. They had managed already to get it to a pilot scale, and now they're going massive scale on what they proved they can do in Canada in the Texas desert. So at that launch in No Trees, I ran into David Keith after a couple of decades, and the proud father of Carbon Engineering told me more about what comes next. The key part of what CE does is we build the air contact are in a modular, cheap way where we need modularity and we build a back end as a big industrial process where we want economies of scale. I, I will say, though, exciting as it was to be at this launch and bright as the prospects can be if they can overcome the challenges, when you walked outside the party tent where people had gathered to look at the place where they're going to build this massive facility, a huge sign said, beware of snakes. I think with any new industry like this, the engineering is not gonna be as easy as they think. They're building a -a first-of-a-kind facility with no supply chain, but as well, the financing. This plant is gonna cost almost a billion dollars in capital from Occidental and its partners, but they're also counting on policy, subsidies. We know governments are fickle. Sometimes subsidies come, sometimes they go. So I think in different ways, there are going to be some snakes.
1: And we've talked a lot on the show about the different ways to tackle the climate crisis, including capturing carbon, storing sequestering carbon. It's been a long time coming, right? This has been a dream for decades. What's different now?
5: There are a couple of things that are different now. One, we have better and cheaper technologies. And the other, it has to be said, is policy. 10 or 20 years ago, governments were not serious about supporting this. The world was less serious, particularly the United States was not serious about climate change. We now have policies in place that support actively and quite generously carbon capture, sequestration, through explicit tax policy, as well as in other parts of the world through regulation and carbon pricing. I think those are the two big differences.
1: But how cheap can it get? I mean, where where are we headed with this particular technology? David Keith told me it's a hard price to guess at.
5: If you ask me really how cheap it's going to be in 15 years, I don't think I know very well. I mean, is it going to be under $500? Yes, for sure. There's no question we know how to do that. Can we fight it down under 200 Yeah, I'm pretty darn confident. Can we fight it down to 100 I don't think we know very well. And just for context, the carbon price in the European carbon markets has been roughly $100 a ton, just to give a benchmark. The figures that officials had put for direct air capture are typically around $600 a ton is where it's been in the past. So what David Keith is talking about and the trajectory of change is very much towards what the market is ready to accept and is already paying
1: in Europe. It has to be said that this effort you describe is being backed by an oil and gas giant. I mean, how should we feel about the industry that kind of helps to put us where we are, getting us out of this trouble?
5: In the end, Jason, the scale of the challenge is so great that we cannot afford to let the ideal be the enemy of the good. Anybody willing to spend tens of billions of dollars even if it's big oil, to help innovative companies scale up the technologies needed for negative carbon emissions should be welcome as they're really helping to build a necessary industry of the future. Thanks very much for your time, VJ. It's been a great pleasure,
1: Jason.
4: One day last month, Spotify's foremost streamed songs were "Ella Baila Sola" by Eslabon Armado and "Peso Pluma," which is an upbeat tune with a prominent trombone.
1: <laughs>
4: Where She Goes by the Puerto Rican megastar Bad Bunny, which mixes R&B and a bit of rap. <laughs> One called Un Porciento, which is a collaboration between Grupo Frontera and Bad Bunny, the medium-tempo Mexican song heavy on acoustic guitar and accordion, and La Bebé by Young Lucas, which is a slow, mostly electronic but reggaeton style from Puerto Rico, which uses a beat adapted from Jamaican music. Lane Green writes Johnson, our column on language. On the surface, these songs don't sound much like each other at all, but the world's top four tunes, which were streamed over 20 million times on the day that they dominated the charts, do share one feature, which is that they are all sung in Spanish. And if you go down the list of the top 20 streamed songs in the week of May 18th, nine of them were in Spanish. In the United States last year, Latin music generated a billion dollars of recorded music revenues, which is a 24% annual increase.
1: So what's going on here with this evident boom in, in Spanish language music?
4: One of the reasons behind this moment that we're experiencing is the boom in the internet-savvy nature of Latin Americans. About half a billion people in the region own a mobile phone, and they are also likely to spend quite a lot of their time on social media, even more than people elsewhere. Argentines and Brazilians, Colombians and Mexicans are estimated to spend about a combined average of three and a half hours every day on social media, which is about an hour more than the global average. So wait, the explanation here is just a lot of social media consumption? Well, not only that, I think a second reason for this boom is that these musicians are increasingly working across national boundaries. These big hitters are appealing a lot more widely than just their home countries, and their fans are extraordinarily dedicated. According to The Economist's analysis of five years of data from Spotify, in Spanish-speaking countries, the share of streams in Spanish went up from 74% in 2017 to 86% in 2021, while the share of english language streams fell by about the same amount, and that might surprise a lot of people in the region itself. And why is that? Why would that be a surprise? Well, the world's Spanish speakers have not always acted as though they share a culture. Boundaries between both musical genres and countries themselves have often gotten in the way. Puerto Rican salsa musicians even went on strike to protest a wave of Dominican musicians who brought merengue to Puerto Rico in the 1970s. But today, more often than not, all these hit songs that we're talking about feature a guest star alongside the main attraction. To Take Despacito by Luis Fonsi in 2017. He's Puerto Rican, and the song also features Daddy Yankee, who's a rapper also from Puerto Rico. It spent 11 weeks at the top of the charts in 36 countries, and the Despacito video was the most seen video on YouTube of all time, until Baby Shark, a children's song, surpassed it in 2020. By the same token, Rosalia, who is a Spanish megastar, sings not only with Bad Bunny, but also with her fiancé Raúl Alejandro, who is like Bad Bunny from Puerto Rico. And she has been streamed over 8 billion times herself on Spotify. Not only that, she brings huge crowds to her shows all around the region. In May, she drew about 160,000 fans to her show in Mexico City. But part
1: of the trend you've identified here happens outside of Spanish-speaking countries. How popular are these tunes outside Latin America?
4: They are quite popular and growing. And, of course, the biggest factor in the rise of Spanish language music is the role of the United States. Spanish language music is popular elsewhere, particularly in parts of Europe, but Latin America's northern neighbor is crucial. The Hispanic population in the United States is now 62.5 million, which is about a fifth of the total in the country. Another thing going on here is that the children of Latin American immigrants seem to keep their Latin American identity. In the old days, the United States was called the graveyard of immigrants' languages because the children and grandchildren of immigrants often spoke English and only English. But today, uh, 72% of Hispanics are either Spanish-dominant or bilingual, and even in the third generation, about a quarter of American Hispanics are still bilingual.
1: So where does this trend end then? Is there a chance that Spanish-language music media will eventually rival English-language media?
4: I don't think that it's going to knock English-speaking culture off its top perch anytime soon, but the inexorable rise of Spanish-language movies and TV and music and the increasing importance of streaming services for grouping their audiences, those things like YouTube and Spotify, are really giving Spanish a boost like never before, even in big waves of Latin American culture in the past. Spanish has about half a billion native speakers, which makes it about the third biggest language in the world, but it has about 100 million non-native, partial speakers, and that number could well be growing. I think the cool factor really lends a momentum to interest in learning the language. People at Duolingo, which is a language learning app, tell me they could really clearly see this in Korean because after every episode of Squid Game, which is a hugely popular show set in South Korea, they would see a spike in signups to learn Korean. These spikes are harder to see for Spanish because the number of people already learning Spanish was much larger than the number learning Korean. But we really are seeing a rise in the number of people who tell Duolingo that their learning language for what they say is fun reasons rather than learning Learning it for school or family reasons. And whether or not they spend time learning Spanish, a lot of people are learning a Latin beat, even if they don't know it. The sort of signature three beat tresillo rhythm of reggaeton, which goes a little bit like. can be heard all over English language music. You can hear it in the opening keyboard figure of Shape of You by Ed Sheeran. So even if listeners don't know it, they are subconsciously learning a Latin beat. Thanks very much for joining us, Lane. Jason, thank you.
1: That's all for this episode of The Intelligence. The show's editors are Chris Impey and Jet Gill. Our deputy editor is John-Joe Devlin, and our sound engineer is Will Rowe, with help this week from Timo Saila. Our senior producers are Sam Westren and Rory Galloway. Our senior creative producer is William Warren. Our producers are Alize Jean-Baptiste, Kevin Kaners, Barkley Bram, and Sarah Lorniuk. We'll all see you back here on Monday.